1: Dr. Jude Curivan is a cosmologist, planetary healer, and author. Having grown up as the daughter of a coal miner in the north of England, she has since journeyed to more than 80 countries around the world and for the last 25 years has lived in the sacred landscape of Avebury. She has experienced multidimensional reality since early childhood and worked with the wisdom keepers both incarnate and discarnate of many traditions. Jude integrates leading-edge science, research into consciousness, and universal wisdom teachings into a holistic worldview. This underpins her work aimed at enabling transformational and emergent resolutions to our collective planetary issues, raising awareness and empowering fundamental change and sustainable solutions to global problems. She holds a Ph.D. in Archaeology from the University of Reading in the UK, researching ancient cosmologies and a master's degree in physics from Oxford University, specializing in cosmology and quantum physics. She is the author of seven non-fiction books currently available in 16 languages and 26 countries. For the last two decades, she has also traveled around the world in service to planetary and collective healing, some of which is described in her books, The Eighth Chakra, The Thirteenth Step, and most recently, Hope, Healing Our People, and Earth. She is here today with Hunter and I to discuss her new book, The Story of Gaia, The Big Breath and the Evolutionary Journey of Our Conscious Planet, amongst many, many other things. I start off the conversation by asking Jude what the inspiration was for her writing this book.
2: It actually goes back, I'm try- I am I always try and remember this, but I never properly do. But it's around 20 years or so ago, maybe more now. And I was guided that at some point I would write a trilogy of books, and at that point I hadn't written any books. Um, And I've written, you know, quite a few. But um, the trilogy that I was having a sense of some point writing, I was told would help people to understand and experience and embody unity, unity of awareness. And that the first book was to be called The Cosmic Hologram. And I did write that and that came out in 2017. The second book was going to be about Gaia about the evolutionary impulse of our universe. And that's the story of Gaia. Then the third book is, and and, you know, the first book's about understanding wholeness. Mm. This I hope is understanding, going beyond that to begin to experience it. And then the third book is hopefully the story of humanity and us and where we are now and where we may consciously evolve to. And that's not yet writing me, so we'll see what. what
3: <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I like the term "not yet writing you." That's great. So, do you think that the the laws of physics are merely just the consistent attributes of the tiny sliver of reality that we can perceive with our senses?
2: I think it's more than that. Um, you know, as a cosmologist, and and having been on this journey since I was very young. I would say that the way our universe exists and evolves as a living, conscious, unified, evolutionary entity is that the laws of physics are fundamental to that. Because the laws of physics are basically about how our whole universe relates with and within itself. And of course, the latest understanding we have is that we talk about the laws of physics, but they they describe the appearance of our universe.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, you know, it's energy, matter, it's space, time, but we now our underst- understanding that that appearance is arising from deeper levels of non-physical um, causation. So the laws of physics are fundamental to how our universe exists and evolves. Can you describe the cosmic microwave background? Sure. Well, when our universe began 13.8 billion years ago, it began in its hottest state and and yet its most ordered, its simplest state. And ever since then, as space has expanded and times flowed forward, um, the temperatures dropped, but there's been ever more informational content embodied within our universe. Now, in those very earliest, that very earliest epoch, the space was so hot that it wasn't transparent to light, but it was to sound, which is a beautiful story all of itself. But eventually, as the temperature dropped, space became transparent to light about 380,000 years after the first moment of space time, what I call the first moment of an ongoing big breath. That was when all the the tiny temperature differences within the universe at that point were essentially imprinted on what we now know as the cosmic microwave background or CMB short. Mm -hmm. In those early days, um, the the, the wavelengths of the CMB were different from now, but they've been stretched. So what we now have is a map of the entirety of space at that very earliest time when space became transparent to light. And what's really important, and it fills the whole of space because the space has expanded. Mm. Of course, all of that's expanded with it. Mm -hmm. What's really important about it is those tiny temperature differences, when you mathematically analyze them, show the mathematical signature of the cosmic hologram. In other words, they show the same what I call, what we call, not I call, but what are known as (laughs) as fractal patterns, these relational geometric patterns that we find at all scales of experience and existence and across many fields of research. So the CMB and that fractal patterning within those temperature fluctuations really give us a cosmologically scaled appreciation of what I write about in the Cosmic Hologram and again in the Story of Gaia. Well, an
3: interesting concept that you brought up in the book uh, and that I'd never encountered before is that um, the you, you say the universe realizes itself through binary code, which sounds yeah. very, you know, technological and computer yeah. it's like computer lingo. How does that how does that work? How does that how does it realize itself in that way?
2: Well, I'll, I'll take a step back to come forward on this. Okay. Um, because um, this understanding really comes from study of black holes. Mm-hmm. And the question arose when it was realised that black holes were more than a theoretical possibility. Um, and, of course, what we found originally is that the, the, the black holes are massive stars, huge stars, that when at the end of their lives they run out of their nuclear fuel, you know, the whole process within stars to keep them shining is this amazing alchemy from simplest elements hydrogen helium to have more compl- complex elements the time comes and it's usually at the point of when iron is created in most stars a bit more than that in in, in really large stars when instead of the reactions sending out more heat that then fuels further reactions the reactions turn in on themselves and start to require more heat that's not there. So the stars begin to collapse. Now, in very massive stars, there's nothing to stop that collapse. They gravitationally collapse, and the the collapse is so powerful as they continue that collapse. They go beyond a threshold, which is known as an event horizon, whereby not even light can escape, Mm. hence the word black hole. So although black holes are spherical, like the stars that they came from, their surface area is this event horizon beyond which no light can escape. So the question was, well, okay, where does all the information that makes up those stars go? Because if it disappears from our universe of space time, Mm -hmm. we've got a fundamental problem. It's very nerdy, but it's all to do with quantum <laughs> physics wouldn't work, basically. Uh, sure. mm. <laughs> it's just quite important. Um, and so the question was, where did that information go? And when the analysis was undertaken, it was realized that it was actually held on the surface. Uh, it was actually held at the event horizon. But here's the important point. You'd think that that three-dimensional information that made up the original star that the information that remained would be proportional to the volume of the star, to the volume of the black hole. Yeah? Mm-hmm. What was instead found that it was proportional to the surface area of the event horizon. Now, that then lit a few light bulbs of, of, above a few heads, <laughs> because that's really what happens to a hologram. When we shine a beam of light at an object. Well, first of all, we we, we take a beam of light, we split it into two, we shine part of it from an object, it could be an apple, it could be pretty much anything. That reflected light back brings back a lot of information about that object. That information then uh, creates a two-dimensional pattern on a plate, and when we shine a light through that plate, a three-dimensional hologram of that original object is projected
0: wow
2: yeah so when we started looking at black holes and realizing that all the information was held on the two-dimensional surface area of the event horizon a few very bright people including Joe 't Hooft, jacob beckenstein uh, lenny suskind and others expanded that understanding to the whole universe with a suggestion that was called the holographic principle which said that our whole universe is essentially a holographic projection from all the information held on its two-dimensional boundary of space-time, one-dimensional space, one of time. Now, we can say this now with with quite a lot of of, um, confidence because we're finding backup for this across many, many other fields of research and what we're realizing is that that information that's held on the boundary of what we call our universe is both pixelated at an incredibly small scale named after max planck but also is digital information in other words the alphabet of our entire universe's meaning and purpose existence and experience and evolution has an alphabet of just two letters, ones and zeros.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But you know, just like just like our technologies, as you were referring to, mm-hmm. even those those letters aren't of themselves really as, as an alphabet wouldn't have any meaning when they're combined, as we do in our technologies. But when they're combined universally, they literally express all the energy matter and space time, the reality of our universe from the smallest to the the totality of its existence. Wow. That is mind blowing. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Can you explain universal non-locality?
2: I'd be delighted to. And what I'm, I'll say something just after that, which is really exciting that you may, may not have heard. Um, Universal non-locality is a view that our entire universe exists and evolves as a non-locally unified entity. Now, some many many years ago, um, this was one of the one of the key um, predictions of quantum physics mm. that our entire universe. Had to be non-locally unified um, because the quantum physicists were finding that at the quantum scale, at the tiny scale, that you know non-local, what's called non-local entanglement, um, was first of all theoretically predicted and then uh, experimentally proven in the laboratory. But this was always a question because the, the, the you know the framework, the theoretical framework, said our entire universe had to be non-locally connected. Now. That was an issue because Einstein realized that nothing within space-time can go faster than the finite speed of light. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, nothing can be signaled within within space-time faster than the speed of light. And that is absolutely crucial.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And it's not an either-or because what we now understand is that that is the case But in this holographic understanding and and universal non-locality of our universe, we can also appreciate that our entire universe in existing and evolving as a unified, non-locally unified entity, knows itself in its entirety simultaneously. In other words, it's rather like a balloon. If we go back to the beginning of our universe, as a balloon, and we blow up a balloon, within the balloon, Within the the expressed reality of our universe, nothing can go faster than the speed of light. That's why we have the flow of time. That's why we have causality and it's vital. But the whole of that surface area of the balloon as it continues to to, to be blown up, as it were, Mm -hmm. expresses more non-locally unified knowing of itself. So it's the most incredible both and mm. that we realize experimentally, because in 2018, that view was experimentally proven uh, by a research team at MIT that were able to non-locally entangle photons of light in a lab, starlight coming down a telescope from 600 light years away, and light coming from what's called a quasar, a very, very active Galactic Center, 12.2 billion light years away. So that light had left that quasar 12.2 billion years ago. Now that's cosmological. So that's the experimental situation. But also in 2022, the Nobel Prize for Physics was given to three researchers who've been experimenting on this universal non-locality for decades. And you don't get a Nobel Prize in physics unless the science on which it is based is considered to be beyond doubt. Mm. So that's where we're at. And this is really exciting for me because I was you know, writing about this a long time ago, but certainly the cosmic hologram. Um, so it's, it's, it's really great that this sort of direction of travel that our universe arises, its appearance arises from deeper levels of meaning and causation, is getting ever more supportive evidence.
3: Well, I'm going to reveal my childlike understanding of all this uh, in the following <laughs> question, so please bear with me. Uh, going back to the the universe being a holographic projection, my mm. mind leads me to ask the question. Well, where is this projection coming from mm-hmm. what is projecting it who mm-hmm. is projecting it what? Mm-hmm. yeah so, is there an answer to those questions or
2: well i asked the very same question yeah. in the cosmic hologram you know because I, I started that book how to make a perfect universe
1: mm. yeah, <laughs> put yeah. all together
2: as to how this happens and one of the later questions on that journey was well you know then who makes this perfect universe And of course, we then move into what, you know, the perception, as Einstein would have named it, cosmic mind, as uh, other folks would call it God, or Allah, or great spirit, or great mystery. But you know, a sense, a realization or appreciation of an infinite and eternal cosmic mind, the ground of all being, which wisdom teachings, spiritual teachings, have told us for millennia and so in that regard our universe is a great thought of cosmic mind and mind and consciousness aren't something we have but literally what we and the whole world are this this finite great thought of an infinite and eternal cosmos and perfectly created and co-created because we are It's microcosmic co-creator. So it's not a creator that sort of has a thought and leaves it to its own devices. It's a a continuing co-creative exploration, experience, um, embodiment in in that sense of this great thought of potential, of individuated self-awareness, of interbeing, of wholeness. It's the most beautiful. In my perspective, it's the most beautiful. And it means that there is no other. We are inseparable from our universe. Our universe is inseparable from the cosmos. And there's nowhere that isn't. There's no thing that isn't. God, Allah, great spirit, great mystery. And yet it's it's not necessary to be religious or even you know, have a spiritual sense. What I would suggest, though, is that in certainly for me and I guess for you guys, this brings such a love and gratitude and joy and meaning into an enrichment of, of you know, worldview and, and a sense of who we are. Because we've been told this whole paradigm that, you know, our universe is meaningless and, yes. mm. and just material and separate and consciousness somehow randomly arises and, exactly. and completely being turned on its head.
3: I love it.
0: So if the earth is a living being, does it have its own consciousness or awareness separate from human consciousness and awareness?
2: Nothing separate. There is no separation, there is interdependence, everything in the appearance of our universe. And I would say the reality of our universe, because although its appearance emerges from deeper non-physical realms of experience, it is real. And reality is relational at every level. we 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 are not we are literally inseparable. And when I talk about a living universe, I use that term in its entirety you know we've we've tended to describe living as biological Mm -hmm. organisms but this is a conscious sentient and thus in my perspective and the evidential perspective a living universe from its very first moment throughout its whole evolutionary journey to us so in that sense You know, we are, uh, right at the end of of the story of Gaia, as you know, I invite us to consider ourselves as Gaians. Mm. Yes.
3: yeah, As Gaians. I love that concept. And obviously this, you know, this idea of separation, that there's fine boundaries in between all of us, or defined boundaries, I should say, between all of us, is a product of of materialist reductionist science. Uh, When do you think... When do you think science sort of just meandered off into the <laughs> into the uh, distraction of materialism, or getting focused on that particularly?
2: I'd l- yeah, I'll be delighted to to give a perspective of that. But before I do, I, I, perhaps it's time to emphasise that unity is not uniformity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. For sure. That unity is radical diversity and differentiation Mm. but it's not separation but you you know you're raising a very very important point over the last couple of years i've been um and this came very much from a sort of series of synchronicities became more aware of the work of francis bacon who tends to be seen as the father of the scientific method Mm -hmm. and in 1623 he wrote a book in latin Corded Mantum Scientiarum. And he was a a philosopher. And what he perceived was that in his era, in his era, the early 1600s, that the understanding of of our universe, and it was obviously much, much more limited than we have now with our technologies, but a lot of it was based on superstition. There was very little experimentation. So a lot of the perception and the worldview was based on superstition, and the church had the authority. Yeah, and what he perceived is that the the, the opportunity to develop a process, to develop a methodology, that would enable experimental uh, experimentation, and 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 bringing together evidence from that experience and that experimentation to give us a deeper understanding of the world. In my research, and I've also um, worked with some incredible scholars of Francis Bacon, his original thoughts and those original writings in Latin were actually very spiritual, because what he was seeking to understand was the nature of the divine at a deeper level and to really bring into an integration heaven and earth. What happened though is that those writings and that perception were translated from the Latin to French by folks who were very much of the uh, secular enlightenment philosophy and the spiritual aspects of his perspectives and aims were taken out it was then the French translations that were then translated back into English without, again, his deeper perspectives. So that started, I think, this perspective that the scientific method was all about materiality. Whereas I, from my research and my understanding and, and, and others, it was much more than that, but it got down that route so progressively, it was, it was more and more separated. There was this schism between you know, scientific methodology and a deeper understanding, a wider understanding of the nature of reality itself and the wholeness of reality itself. What I'm finding really interesting, though, is in esoteric tradition, a period of 400 years is almost like a pulse, a wave. He wrote his book in 1623. We're now in 2023. And all of this evidence that I write about in the story of Gaia and the cosmic hologram supports the wholeness, literally this integration of the wholeness of reality. So it's like it's gone full circle and yeah. scientific evidence has come to this <laughs> revelatory point that converges With universal wisdom teachings, indigenous teachings.
3: Yeah, I love it. Uh, It's finally catching up to things that people have been saying for thousands of years. Eastern philosophy. Yeah, it's fantastic.
0: Do you believe that the earth needs humans as much as we need her? Or is
2: it possible that the earth could exist without us? That's a great question. And it's a really important question, isn't it, for now, given where we've come. And I don't want to put any blame or shame or any of it. We've got enough trauma to deal with that we need to clean up and you know, heal without sort of going down that, that journey. I write in the story of Gaia that I feel everything in, in existence has meaning and purpose, which inevitably is that our planetary home, Gaia, does, and it inevitably means that we do. You know. I talk about us and her and the whole universe at the bow wave in this moment, this here and now, the bow wave of its future potential to to even more consciously evolve. And so that means for me that we have meaning and purpose here as part of Gaia's own evolutionary meaning and evolutionary purpose and progress. If we choose to, because it is a collective moment of choice, do we stay in that illusion of separation and materiality? Or do we wake up to remember we're inseparable and remember who we really are and who we could consciously evolve to become? Because it seems to me if that's the choice we make, then we really do step into our destiny as guidance mm. with her on her onward journey if not just as she's shown in the past she is incredibly resilient and she is adamant she is on this evolutionary journey but i feel it will be such a an awful shame and we have done so much damage you know through that worldview of materialism separation and we've done so much hurt to ourselves and to her and all her children but you know, the, the, if, if, if we don't stop that, her progress will be put back because the loss of biodiversity, the climate change, all of that. And yet, by us choosing, making a choice of love, it seems to me that we can now link up and lift up together to grow up. As Ken Wilber said, to wake up, mm. to, to grow up. You know, we need to clean up, but we can also then show up and then we can link up and lift her. I just feel this is the most incredible time and opportunity for us. But can she go on without us? In my view, yes. Yeah. Would I would I prefer her not to? <laughs> wholeheartedly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well did you? No, no, somewhere. Go ahead.
3: Um well you mentioned uh, previously about um, uh, the, let's see, the universe is being digitized, digital, a digital system. And I can just see the ears pricking up of all these simulation theorists going, aha, I told you. Uh, do you think that these there's there's absolutely anything at all to that? Or do you think these people have just been reading too much science fiction?
2: And writing, perhaps. Um, <laughs> yes. I- <laughs> yes i I do i do feel that um i think what the simulation theory came forward and the folks who put it forward were were folks and and you know they're very of course everybody's welcome to their views and, and and all of that but i think their perspective was the materialism and separation perspective um because instead of you know following the evidence that mind and consciousness aren't something we have they're literally in the whole world are by pertaining to that materiality and separation but also looking at the incredible fine tuning and order of our universe either you go down a route of parallel universes where everything is random and you know nothing has meaning which again has no evidence or you can go down a simulation route which says that we are the product of an advanced civilization. But for me, there's a basic illogic to that because it just kicks the can down the road. If we are the, if we are the creation of an advanced and, and presumably material um, material paradigm civilization, we still haven't resolved the point you raised earlier, who is the creator?
0: Mm.
2: It just kicks the can down the road. Unless, you, unless we come to this point this um, rea- unless we come to this realization that we can't exclude the nature of mind and consciousness—I mean, universal mind and consciousness—not human-centered mind and consciousness—from the exploration and to follow the evidence wherever it leads, then I just feel we're 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 sort of going off to tangent again, and unhelpfully so, because for me the simulation hypothesis is as disempowering. Mm. Material separation perspective is so the origin of the our
0: universe is thirteen point eight billion years old. What was outside of that black hole was the univ- that the universe was formed in. Were there other universes?
2: I wouldn't describe our universe as a black hole. What I would say is the holographic principle is an expansion from black hole dynamics to the whole universe. It doesn't mean that our entire universe in that way Mm. is is a black hole. Um, There may well be. I mean, one of the things that we're we're sort of actively researching, I mean, a lot of this is work in progress, of course. All science is work in progress. is that you know, our, our universe may have been born from the, the, the depths of a previous black hole or supermassive black hole. There is an extension to uh, relativity um, that actually suggests that when supermassive black holes are formed, there might be this, the, the, the actual forces are so powerful that actually new universes might actually bud off, you know, as an amoeba budding off into a new universe. So that is still very, very early days in terms of any investigation, how indeed we might investigate that. But, yes, I, I think that's every likelihood. I can't, you know, from my experience and exploration, I just find it would be highly likely that our universe has been the only the only finite universe in an infinite eternal cosmos <laughs> it has a lot of our universe <laughs> yes exactly
3: well what do you think of the of the branch of science that seems to want to um sort of step between us and the material world or, or the, I should say the natural world um I'm thinking of uh transhumanism um this sort of like wanting to replace and sort of remove us from the natural order of things by uh, putting us in front of screens for a longer amount of time, sort of uh, blanketing the world in EMFs and all kinds of uh, microwave radiation, uh, which again throws the balance of the natural world off. Uh, Do you think this misguided uh, um, flight of fancy will eventually sort of realize that it's futile to, to, to try and sort of set up its own godly sort of sh- store in the middle of, of, of the natural order of things? Or do you think that it will amount to something, that it's going to be sort of a race between the kind of uh, awareness that you're talking about, realizing that there's no separateness, that we are a part of the natural order of things, or that, you know, sort of this idea that... Um, we're not good enough just being mere humans and we need to uh, sort of augment ourselves with technology and stuff. How do you see that playing out?
2: Again, it's another great question. For for me, it it sort of is retrogressive in a sense. I mean, it's it's technologically progressive, Mm -hmm. but it's sort of still within that old and we now know flawed paradigm of materialism and separation indeed and in that paradigm so transhumanism is making us better and yet we've not even begun in my view to really as a species understand the innate powers that we have exactly in a multi-dimensional, universe of uh, it is living sentient evolutionary you know i talk about our superpowers of intuition Mm. and much much more you know a number of of colleagues are working and have been working for decades on on the power of group intention group consciousness we've we're not even really we're just opening the doors to to this possibility of our innate powers as, as humans let alone as gaian's um, and then to sort of go into a technological, what I would see as as a cul-de-sac, to me, again, it, it's not inspiring or empowering. Mm-hmm. And it's still pushing consciousness to the sidelines instead of bringing it front and centre and the realisation that mind and consciousness are what we in the whole world are. And we have such an incredible, it seems to me. Evolutionary opportunity at this point, should we choose to consciously evolve? And who knows what that will open up to us. So, I
0: have a, a question that could be considered like a three part question in one What are your thoughts on the firmament and the concept of flat earth? Do you think that that even matters? <clears throat> Um, (laughs) be honest.
2: (laughs) I I don't. I mean, I would honor anybody's opinion, but I do feel there's something called objective truth or Mm -hmm. objective reality. And that is what the scientific method was being so powerful at. As long as we follow the evidence, that that is the crucial point. And there is something that's now being described as scientism which is where there is a reluctance to follow the evidence. The best for me, the scientists that I have the greatest respect for, such as Einstein, such as Max Planck, such as Charles Darwin, such as Isaac Newton, such as many, many giants whose shoulders we stand on, followed the evidence as far as they could. And then they stopped, but they followed the evidence. And for me, I can't really get my head around how someone could believe in a flat Earth if you've been up in a, in a, a plane at 29,000 feet and done what I've done, mm-hmm. which is fly around the world many times, which is to, to actually speak to the astronauts in the ISS to actually look at all the, you know, the evidence we have from space that our Earth clearly, Gaia clearly is, is a, a, a planetary sphere. Uh, So you know, I think there's one thing to say: this is my opinion, or this is my belief, and I honor that. But when it's when it's put forward as objective, yeah, objective reality, then I then I I scratch my head a little bit. (laughs) We like to
0: leave room for all opinions, and and we don't really stand in a place of knowing. I, I think there is an objective reality, and I think it's important to give people the opportunity to express themselves, yeah. and we've had people on the show before who are staunch believers in a firmament and staunch believers in a flat earth, and out of respect for them, I think it's important to give them the opportunity to describe what they I, I believe and why they believe that.
3: Yeah, I think we, if we start making...
2: I agree with you. Yeah.
3: yeah. If we start drawing lines where we can't stop, or we have to stop asking questions, I think it uh, can be dangerous. You know, of course there are... You I agree. know Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within reason, sure. But I, I think that I I myself enjoy uh, entertaining lots of different ideas. And I, if somebody believes something that at first sounds very outlandish to me, I want to know why they believe that. So... That's you know that's the that's the fun part of having conversations. I, I, I'd
2: love to hear. It. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
3: absolutely, wholeheartedly agree. Uh, let's see. What what what? Uh, I had something that I was going to cue You have something you can? Yeah, I do. I'm going to try and figure out where I was going to go with that,
0: Doctor Curvin. Can you please explain <laughs> the Planck scale of
2: existence? Oh, there we go. I'd be happy to. What what we find, you know, we were speaking about the laws of physics earlier and the relationships between them. And what we find is that there are four constants within the whole of, of our universals um, reality that when we shake them out and, and take the sort of how we measure them away, in other words, do we measure them in meters or or whatever it may be, they actually come down to to unity, to one, to just a measurement of one. And those four measures are the speed of light in a vacuum, the gravitational constant, what's called Planck's constant, which is sometimes called the quantum of action, and and it relates to the minimal uh, measurement that we can make of anything, and what's called Boltzmann's constant which actually reflects the, uh, is a response to the energy states or the informational content of a system. Now, if we take those four constants, which are fundamental, we find that they also can describe five attributes of our universe, energy, matter, space, time, and temperature. Hmm. And so when we do that, we find, and, 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 and what we find is there are five measures of these five basic attributes, and this is called the Planck scale. Mm. So there's a Planck scale energy, there's a Planck scale mass, there's a Planck scale length, there's a Planck scale time, and there's a Planck scale temperature. And what we find is they are the most fundamental scales at which the reality of our universe, the finite reality of our universe as a as a finite thought form mm-hmm. in the infinite cosmos comes into realisation. So for example, the information I was talking about earlier that is that is held on the holographic boundary of what we call space-time is pixelated at mm-hmm. the Planck scale. Mm. And it's pixelated as it's on a two-dimensional surface of space-time. In, in in sort of triangular areas. Now, those triangular areas reflect the Planck length. And so the Planck length is as small as to an atom as an atom is the entire universe. It's a minute 10 to the minus 35 meters. And in time-wise, the Planck time is, is just even more extraordinary. I mean, if, if you guys can get your head around it, you're better than I am. <laughs> um, better than I am. But it's 10 to the minus 44 seconds. Wow. So that's a billionth, trillionth, trillionth, trillionth of a second. Wow. This is the basic pixelation of our cosmic hologram. And so it means that in every moment, in every plank moment, our universe as space expands and as time flows, is adding more and more and more informational content on that boundary to then be holographically experienced and embodied as the, the manifestation, the reality of our universe.
0: I, what you have convinced me of, Dr. Karevan, is that I never have to take a psychedelic again. <laughs> all, all I have to do oh, yes. is, is study Gaia. <laughs> it is oh, absolutely goodness. mind-blowing. Can you describe
2: yeah. the, the big breath? Yeah. Well, I, I suppose we were all taught at school that our universe began 13.8 billion years ago as a Big Bang. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And we know it wasn't big and it wasn't a bang. Mm. Um, now we've known from the get go that it was tiny. You know, the word big was sort of slightly facetious. It was minute, mm. a minute beginning. But, you know, if I was to, to ask you, you know, if we use the word bang, what does that conjure up for you? An explosion of some Something kind. Violent. Yeah, violence, chaos, explosion. And it just wasn't like that. Our universe began in an incredibly ordered and amazingly fine-tuned way. You know, some some estimates have made the point that it's, that it's fine-tuning of its basic constants is one to a thousand trillion trillion. If it was out by more than one part in a thousand trillion trillion or more, that's a minimum we would not be here. It would, it would have sputtered before it started. Mm. So rather than use the word Big Bang um, and also recognising that it's an ongoing process of space expanding and time flowing ever since, I came up with the, with the concept of Big Breath because, you know, for, for a number of reasons. First of all, it's much more closely reflective of the reality of how our universe was born and how it continues to exist and evolve. And also, it links into the ancient understanding of our universe as the outbreath um, of Brahman in the case of the ancient Indian wisdom teachings. And in those traditions, that tradition especially, the Vedic tradition, the word prana is the word for breath and also the word for spirit Mm. so it brings together you know ancient wisdom this whole much more aha sense (laughs) a much more evidence-based sense of of how our universe exists and evolves
3: um i think that you oh i know that you are of the mind that we are all co-creating this existence, this reality. Um, and th- we've known by quantum theory that the observer can affect the observed. So I that leads me to wonder how, a sp- particularly materialist branches of science, how we affect the universe and our perceptions of it by quantifying it and naming it and coming to conclusions about it. Uh, do you think that that maybe takes things off of our perceptual menu and sort of maybe in the end limits the way that we interact with it.
2: I don't think it necessarily needs to. And, you know, my own journey has been one of the, the the ancient traditions tended to emphasize one of three paths, essentially to to deeper awareness. There's a path of understanding, the path of the sage, um, there was the path of experiencing, uh, the path of shaman, and then the path of revelation, the path of the seer. And it seems to me that we have the opportunity now to interweave those paths of understanding, experience, and embodying. So, you know, although, you know, I, I have a scientist hat on sometimes, I also have a mystic hat on. Mm. <laughs> Indeed. I also have a shamanic you know i i love that i love that all many ways of knowing many ways of experiencing um not just the intellectual but it's and and for me it's it's a it's a both and or a triple and trinity and not an either or and i feel when we integrate those three way those three ways i talk about it uh, you know our conscious um revolution um to whole being and belonging, because for me, this is the way to our remembering the wholeness of who we really are and the belonging to a whole universe.
3: I love it. Did you have something?
0: So, do, do you think that super string theory is a possible explanation for multiverses?
2: I'm, I don't talk a lot about multiverses because they're so speculative at the moment. Mm. Um, um, but I'm, I'm very open to, to that concept. And, and if we can get some further, um, evidence in whatever way, I'll be delighted to, 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 sort of see what that shows us. Um, I think super string theory is, can be helpful as a, as a mechanism, but I feel that it's still part of a, a mindset of materialism. Essentially it's multidimensional materialism in, in an odd sense, Right, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't welcome consciousness as as the as the as the in, innate reality. You know, I keep going back to mind and consciousness aren't what we have. there literally what we and the whole world are. But that is fundamental, and superstring theory doesn't address that because it's still part, in a sense, of a, a consciousness peripheralized worldview. Interesting.
3: Did you have some place you wanted to go from no, there? Go ahead. Um, uh, this is a great word, and I'm I'm uh, anxious to to have you define it. But what is the quadrivium? I'd never heard that word before.
2: The quadrivium is is a, a sort of a curriculum. Mm-hmm. It's both um, a scientific curriculum, but it's and and again, it's that it's that convergent curriculum. And it's based on a perspective, a cosmological perspective, because obviously it goes back a long way, uh, of a cosmology of wholeness. um, But a cosmology of a a harmonious, a harmonic universe where everything is in relationship to everything else and where the fundamental stuff, as it were, is number. Now, we've been talking today about that numerical base as at its most foundational as ones and zeros but of course you know we could we can bring to that um, for example what the I Ching tells us that in the beginning is the one the one becomes two the two becomes three and from the three ten thousand things are born so yes. you know that would also be very much in in in, in what I'm sharing and, and the evidence for that But the quadrivium's cosmology is a cosmology of wholeness of relationship where number is that you know that fundamental foundation it then speaks to um music as being number in time and it speaks to geometry as number in space and again you know i write about in both the cosmic hologram and the story of god the resonance the harmonies that pervade our entire universe at all scales the fact that the first 380000 years when space was too hot to be visible to light was to sat it was it 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 sounded so there was this incredible primordial arm reverberating through the beginnings of our universe and that harm harmonies and resonances are are key so you know the quadrivium has a lot to sort of of wisdom that we can sort of reshape and take forward Um, in what we're discovering now and and the sort of framing and the underpinning that, you know, is now being offered by the evidence.
0: So as part of the experience of Gaia, if we are consciousness and the universe arises from a cosmic mind, why is suffering part of that expression?
2: As, As a healer, in my experience, suffering comes from the illusion of separation. Mm-hmm. At it, at its most foundational, you know whether that's separation through a perceived death of the you know death of the consciousness when somebody passes, and that loss um, to loneliness to all the things to the way we are with each other, the way we behave with 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 Gaia from that perspective of separation, that for me, defines suffering. And, you know, in indigenous societies that I've had the great fortune and, and privilege to, to be with, their perspective of, of an interrelated, integral web of life means the suffering is far less, there's far less trauma within those indigenous societies, unless they've been on the receiving end. Mm-hmm. Of, of the suffering that's been imposed upon them. But, you know, that that, that that perception of unity and diversity, but the web of life means that, yes, things change. Things are born, things live, things die. But they have rites of passage. They have community um, community relationships that mean that no one, you know, goes through those in a sense of loneliness or aloneness and that they're, they're they're understood in terms of that grief is is part of you know the as as our queen said once you know the price of love is grief but where there is a grief that's held and nurtured and loved and supported it finds its own path to a level of healing so you know, for, we could we could have a whole session on this, but ultimately, for me, suffering arises from the illusion of separation.
0: I think that's why we can create suffering uh, inside of Gaia, is because we are seeing ourselves as being separate beings. We don't see ourselves as being connected to the earth or being the earth. So, so that's why it's easy to destroy something that you feel you're not connected to.
2: Exactly. And it's true, as you say, it's true in the way we other, whether it's, you know, someone else or or someone who doesn't look like us or think like us, it goes back to, you know, when we're saying, just be open. Um, And for me, you know, unity and diversity, I feel we have an opportunity to go beyond that to unity and inclusion. And ultimately, when we open our hearts to the wholeness of what we've been sharing today, there's a remembered unity in belonging. We remember we belong, you know, to each other, to Gaia, to to the whole world. That, for me, is, is such an invitation, such an invitation for our conscious evolution.
0: So what's the first step to nurture ourselves and the earth? Is it just being a part of it, like physically going out into nature? How can we heal ourselves and in turn
2: heal the earth? I don't think there is a, the step or the first step. Mm-hmm. I think it's a first step that's unique to everyone, mm-hmm. every one of us. And yet it is a collective journey. So it's whatever. For me, it's it's what make, makes my heart sing. Tr- you know, Move towards what makes my heart sing. Move towards what makes your heart sing. Whether it's being in nature, whether it's yoga or mindfulness, whether it's cooking, mm. baking, whether it's, in my case, dancing to Abba around the kitchen table. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it.
2: Whatever. Whatever it is, gardening, whatever it may be gravitate literally gravitate to what makes your heart sing i feel is is vital step by step and then the other one is cultivate the golden rule in your life
0: you Indeed. know
2: treat others and mother earth Gaia, as you'd wish to be treated and and don't wait for a, a high day or holiday as they say to do that you know empathy random acts of kindness you know just a smile at someone Whatever it may be, for me, the golden rule, which literally reverberates through every wisdom tradition, is, is the most fundamental way we can behave as we go through this journey of, of, of whole being and belonging, of homecoming to wholeness.
3: I think that is a, a perfect place to end this fantastic chat. Um, on a positive note not that it, there's not been negative notes and i mean it's all been positive but i think that's a good place to put a bow on it i believe um would you mind uh, telling the listeners where they can find you and your work and and get your books online
2: thank you both well my books pretty much any good bookstore or amazon of course or my publisher inner traditions mm-hmm. um in terms of where to reach me the best place um, is at a uh, whole world dash view because that's it's it's an organism it's not an organisation
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's an evolving organism that i co-founded 6 years ago and our website is dot world, W-O-R-L-D, vieworg view, and we there's lots of resources there there's an invitation um to 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 join our newsletter, Courtney Newsletter, and find out lots of incredible, incredible things that are happening around the world now as as we are waking up to remember we're inseparable.
3: Fantastic. I love it. it was such a great message. I love how you uh can blend uh spirituality and mysticism in with science, which I think is so much lacking in the world today. I mean the, the materialist aspect of science obviously seems to be the dominant form uh, in this world, or at least in the Western world. And it's so limiting and so um, divisive, can be divisive in a lot of ways. And sort of, you know, keeping us in this context of like we're just random products of this collision that happened out of nowhere and we're lucky to be here and an asteroid could take us down at any time. Like it's to also like, there's no purpose to it. And, and the way that you come at it really helps to remind us that there is indeed a purpose and that we are all very important. We're all a very important part of this whole. So I thank you very much for that.
0: And I, I love the word remember Yes, because it's really about Cohesion and being a member of this beautiful consciousness and this beautiful earth and this beautiful universe that we are members of. So, thank you so very much, Dr. Kurivan. I appreciate your time, your energy, your work, your efforts. You're really fantastic. You
2: are a, a force of nature. Indeed. <laughs> well, thank and bless you both for all that you're doing. And it's been my whole heart a pleasure and delight to be with you today. So thank you both.
3: Likewise. Lots of love. Likewise. And the pleasure was ours. And uh, we'll have all of those links in the episode notes, and we will send you a link when it's live.
2: Thank you so much.
3: All right. Take care, too.
2: have a lovely rest of the day, guys. You, you too. Enjoy it.
3: Farewell. Bye. Bye for now. So what what did you think of that
0: my dear I I just love her and I think she's so brilliant and you know she has such a soothing voice and you know she she comes from this place where I feel like Gaia is speaking directly to us which is really amazing I feel like the if the earth and the universe had a voice, it would be Dr. Karibin's voice.
3: Hopefully. Yeah. It is very soothing and relaxing. Um, her children must have been lucky if they were read uh, their bedtime stories by her.
0: Or scolded. <laughs> or scolded. Yeah. <laughs> I would take that.
3: Yeah. Uh, she's She's got a very fantastic uh, energy about her. Very um, sharp and intelligent but also very playful and curious curious being the most important i think which is what we need more in scientists um and i wouldn't say that that's the as she said she has many hats but um she definitely that's a big part of the of the whole of her and she uh mixes it with a a um um, all these words are escaping me a good dose of spirit and uh mysticism and interconnection, Eastern philosophy. She brings in lots and lots of different things that I think are sorely lacking.
0: Yeah, I, I, one of the reasons that I wanted to ask her about the firmament and the, the Boy, flat you there. earth hypothesis is because typically in these types of dialogues and in these types of queries, you're you're not going there because you're kind of sticking to someone's work specifically. And, you know, I'm interested in what people's opinions are about other opinions. And, you know, I feel like she was so respectful of that. And she didn't poo-poo it necessarily. Uh, You know, she said what I assumed she would say, which is that she's looking at objective reality, and she's giving her perspective based on uh, those findings.
3: Yeah, I, I respect you for going there. I would not have gone there um, myself, and that's good. That's that's a good thing that you did that. Simulation theory and transhumanism, I thought, were um, as far as I was willing to go in directions outside of her book, uh, or what I've heard her speak about because they're things I think that are more discussed um, by more people in the mainstream. There's no dogma around it or stigma. That's what I mean. Um, and that's great. And not that the things that have stigma shouldn't be brought up by any means, but I, <laughs> I just didn't have the cajones to uh, bring that up in this conversation. And I, I, I guess on one in one way, I didn't see it as relevant, but it's all relevant. So, Kudos to you for bringing it up.
0: Well, it's all part of consciousness. That's that's part of the the spectrum of beliefs right now and hypotheses right now. And I think that's why it's important, because you know historically that's been part of the dialogue. Is that you know people did believe that the earth was flat and that there is a firmament. Uh, so I think kind of. Looking at her perspective, you know, when people talk to Neil deGrasse Tyson and he gets super angry or or Michio Kaku and they get very kind of, uh, you know, I I don't know. It's kind of
3: demeaning and well demeaning,
0: but also it's like they're they're kind of looking at these ideas you know, and mocking them or, you know, looking at, at these ideas and, and and really trying to uh, minimize them. Mm-hmm. I think that what that does is that that limits the dialogue and that limits the conversation in a way where people feel like they can't talk about things that everyone doesn't agree upon. Exactly. And, you know people used to think that people were possessed and that's why they had epileptic seizures (laughs) and the way that those things were, were investigated and it was determined that there was actually some brain function uh, misfiring that was happening. That's the way that we discover those things is by having conversations about it and doing research about it and not just saying, Oh, that's, you know, that's, Wickedness, or or whatever the opinion was,
3: but I think both of those actually, just to take that example, both of those things do exist: <laughs> possession and and right. epileptic but, seizures. But, but I know the, what you're saying; I right, know the point the you're fact trying to make.
0: That someone's having an epileptic seizure isn't because they're possessed by a demon, yeah,
3: or they're not expelling one if they're sneezing, right? Yes. Um. So, yeah, there was a lot of things that I wanted to broach with her, but there just wasn't a amount of, uh, because I got the, the time difference wrong. We only had an hour with her as opposed to two hours. So there were places that I wanted to go that I didn't get to go, but maybe, maybe next time we'll have her on again.
0: Yes, I wanted to ask her what attractor, what are attractors? That's something uh, that was in the book.
3: That's what farmers plow their fields with.
0: I am going to get you, sucker. <laughs> Hopefully. Is <laughs> uh, that a threat or a promise? Both. <laughs> um, but I love the the whole idea of uh, Gaia having consciousness and awareness and this perspective that we are part of that consciousness and awareness but at the same time, we are not necessary that the earth can exist without us. Uh, I don't know. I, I have very mixed feelings about whether or not I believe that we are harming the earth to a, a degree or a level that she can't recover from it. What I I opine is that we are uh, on some level we are superfluous to the earth that we are not necessary that the earth could exist without us and that the earth can heal with us on it if we allow it to and i think that that's the thing that that we're trying to navigate right now is is what levels of you know, I think of it as a mother. You know, I look at mothers and how children having a child affects the the physical body. And in some ways, some people perceive that a weakening of the body, but I think other people can see it as a strengthening of the body and a bolstering of the body by having a child, by bi- biologically having a child. So I think that that the earth is kind of the same way. Yes, there is uh, damage that's done to the earth by us being on it, but I also think that we have the capability and the ability to strengthen the earth's immune system.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Work in accordance. We're not an aberration separate from nature. We're a part of nature, but it's the arrogance and the, the scientific materialism, I believe, that causes us to think that we are outside of that and that we can become better than that uh, or control it or tame it which is going to lead to nothing but disaster and I think we're seeing that right now we've been seeing it for a long time um, from the industrial revolution forward I think Um, and we've gotten out of the natural rhythm of things uh, I think is our downfall but we certainly can bolster those things like when we had Mitch on Um, talking about orgone energy and how these things, when you're tower busting, they they regulate uh, or they should say they bring back or allow things to go back into a natural balance. They don't uh, try to manipulate something that's already there. They try and uh, bring it back to balance. I can't think of another way to to articulate that, but recalibrate recalibrate. Yeah. So I think that, Ideally, that is what our role as stewards of this realm would be: is to to do that, and we'll see. <laughs> we'll see well, how things go. Well, I mean, go. you
0: look at you look at areas like uh, Fukushima and um, Chernobyl, and what has happened when we have stepped away from these places, and we've just kind of allowed the earth to heal herself and do it, do its own, have its own time uh-huh. line when it comes to that healing and animals have come back to those areas and, you know, plant growth has, you know, just exploded exponentially because people haven't been there tamping it down. So I think that there, there's something very mystical and magical about that that is is us kind of standing out of the earth's way and allowing Gaia to do have it, it her own process and not trying to influence or affect that cycle. What I would have loved to talk to her about is geoengineering and weather modification and cloud seeding and all of these very uh controlled mechanisms that are being utilized right now to influence uh, the atmosphere and influence uh, our weather and what her thoughts on that are just in terms of, you know, what we now call climate change.
3: Which is climate being changed by the very things that you're talking about.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It would be interesting to hear what her perspective is on that.
3: Yeah, I think that I would be less well, <laughs> ballsy to bring that up with her because she never ever even slightly leans in that direction. Whereas Alana Freeland I think is coming right. from a evidence based science too, but she's definitely leaning in that direction. Right. But that again, that's just that right. shows that I don't have the courage to take something into a place where I might get ridiculed. That's my own insecurity. Right. So
0: Well, I mean, you know, Harvard is teaching a class now in geoengineering. Michio Kaku went on the CBS morning show talking about shooting lasers into the sky to modify weather. So these aren't um, these aren't conspiracy theories that aren't that are baseless. These are things that scientists are actually talking about. David Keith has been talking about it and doing it for decades. So these are things that are actually happening. I would just be curious what her, her perspective on us um, manipulating or influencing the weather, creating tsunamis. You know, this is stuff that was happening in the Vietnam war that there is evidence for.
3: Yeah, I agree. I just don't know if it's her, like if she would, be versed in that field of knowledge. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It would be curious to, to delve into that with her and see what her thoughts are. Mm -hmm. What a cool chick. (laughs) I, I literally at one point felt like I was hallucinating. Like she's so smart and she's capable of describing and explaining these really complicated, uh, scientific, theories and facts in such a way where it it, it's mind-blowing
3: yeah i my i admittedly my eyes can are very apt to glaze over, not because the, the subject matter is boring, but I just have a hard time wrapping my mind around it as quickly as she's talking about it.
0: Yeah, I feel I like would, I'm traveling when she's talking about it.
3: I would ideally interrupt her maybe three or four times during any paragraph and go, well, well, hold on, what what did you mean by that? You know, like, I'm... I get lost and stuff like that very easy. I'm bigger or I'm better with smaller pictures, slightly smaller pictures, um, or less syllables.
0: <laughs> I, I feel <laughs> like I go into this absorbing mode where I divorce myself from rational thought And I'm not trying to dissect what's being said. I'm trying to perceive it from like more of a direct level. And so when she was talking about universal non-locality and CMB, the cosmic microwave background, this is such a mind-blowing concept that I I just have to kind of let her go and go with that. To see if you know, where what part of the stream I can observe, and so I'm trying to observe the whole stream as opposed to getting into the the minutia of that, because that's where I would get lost. As if I tried to just pick apart what was being said, I try to just see it as a, a totality, and it's intense. I mean, that's that's some really dense verbiage.
3: Indeed, it's very abstract for me, for my tiny mind. But I think we've, you know, we've babbled enough, right? Do you think
0: you're there? I mean, I think that's the thing that she's saying is that I guess not you are the consciousness, you are the awareness. So I think your mind or your brain is trying to perceive something that it is, and that's where it becomes this kind of Mobius strip of thought is that you're trying to perceive what you're, what you are, what you're, it's like trying to understand your cells. Yeah, I would never
3: do it in that abstract of a fashion though. That's what I'm saying. It's just not the, not the verbiage I would use. But anyway, I know what you're saying, but I'm, but my consciousness is not as evolved in that way as hers is. So I'm a simp really is what it boils down to. (laughs) And I'm fine with that. Sometimes simplicity and ignorance (laughs) We'll go with simplicity. Uh, makes it more efficacious to navigate life and get the important things attended to and taken care of. Uh, as long as those important things are indeed, um, oh God, I've really dug a fucking ditch now, haven't I? Uh, are are of, of ethical worth to to the big picture um meaning like oh god why did i even start on this train of thought and you're not going to save me at all
0: no well what i was going to say is i look at an infant i look at a baby and a, a baby is pure consciousness so a baby is more connected to Gaia and to the earth, the, the consciousness of the earth, than an adult, because it hasn't been, it hasn't had the imprint of uh, doubt or um, self reflection put on it, sublimated on it. So th- when I'm trying to understand these concepts, I try to go into that infant mind, which is every cell of my being is connected to to this universal consciousness and understanding it from that perspective.
3: Yeah. That I can, I can grasp, but the microwave, whatever you said, the, all that stuff, the scientific terms, I get lost in scientific terms. 11.5 billion years. Like how I, my question is, well, how do we know that? 13. Like 8. 13.8, 13.8. Yeah. doesn't really matter to what's, it doesn't affect the price of milk, but, um, I, I just, I have to concentrate on what I can readily get some nourishment from that means something to me. I have a hard time with anything that's abstract, math, uh, science, like past a certain point. it's like, I, that doesn't register, That doesn't resonate with me on any level. So I'm going to stick with what I resonate with, but remain curious about things outside of that. Mhm. <clears throat> So I just don't do good with abstractions. I don't like abstract art. I don't like, excuse me, abstract experimental music. Like I I need something to hold on to. I like storytelling. I like things that I can follow. And this is all making me sound like a small minded person that doesn't ever venture outside of my comfort zone. But I swear I'm not that person. Um, It just, I can only go to a certain point and then I kind of just go, I, I don't know after the, I don't, I don't, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me.
0: Yeah. I wanted to go into kind of an existential avenue and just ask her why Gaia exists. Like what's the, what's, what is the necessity and the, the need to understand the nature of our being? Is it, is it necessary to understand consciousness and our can connection to consciousness in order to influence or affect it or is there just something that we can just be observers and we don't have to try to influence or affect it
3: i think also too i come from a point of view where i don't feel like i need every single aspect of reality defined and quantized um i think that it's mystery is not a bad thing mystery is not not saying that I'm not curious about them or I don't want to explore them, but I don't need to shine a light in every single corner of reality um, to know the ins and outs of how it works, how it functions, what's its role, so on and so forth. Many. Yes. I have many, many interests that take me in many, many directions, but every single bit do I need to define and and weigh and measure? I do not. So I, I think it's okay to leave the wonder in in things. It's okay to have unanswered questions. Um, so yeah, that's just me. So it gets past a certain point in an abstraction where it's like, I don't need the answers to those questions. I, I, that's just, is too abstract for me to have anything to do with that information. Does that make any sense? You don't have to agree with it, but does it make sense?
0: It does make okay, sense. Cool.
3: <laughs> and that's that. <laughs> okay. Well, we babbled for over 20 minutes. Um, Thank you all so very, very much for listening. Uh, Hopefully you got something great and outstanding from this episode. Uh, It's easy to look at the screen where my image is as opposed to the camera where you're looking at me in. Um, Let's see. Uh, Where do we go from here? Oh, contact. What? What are you thinking? Something's going on in that mind of yours.
0: I just want to take that mirror down. Upstairs. That's what I was okay. thinking. <laughs> yeah.
3: That doesn't pertain to what we're dealing with right here. If you have any guest suggestions, um, ideas, casserole recipes, uh, criticisms, praises, you can email us at uh, themeltpodcast uh, at protonmail.com or
0: hunter-muse at protonmail.com.
3: We encourage you to share our content uh, with your friends and family if you see fit. If you see it as uh, something that they may be into, or it accents a conversation that you had recently that maybe pertains to something that we've been talking about, um, you can do that. We've got we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, obviously we're on YouTube, um, and we have our website. So, uh, yes, sharing and getting the word out is a great way to contribute to what we're doing here. And uh, yeah, we would appreciate that if you would do that. We, we trust you to be our ambassadors. So uh, thank you. <clears throat> excuse me so very much for listening. We love you. And uh, as always, there's fantastic stuff coming and uh, we're very excited to bring it to you. That's right. <laughs> Farewell all.
0: Yeah. Yeah.